You're listening to the First Baptist Church Broken Arrow podcast. To learn more about the church, visit us at fbcba.org. Today's sermon comes from our pastor, Dr. Matt Brooks. Welcome on to church. If you want to please open your Bibles and me to the book of Galatians this morning, Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, as we conclude a series that we started several weeks ago on two of the greatest chapters in the entire New Testament, we simply called it No Other Way, Galatians 3 and 4. Just so many incredible things that I just want to give praise and glory to the Lord for before we study the text this morning. One, just thanking God for this past week, just so many of you selflessly giving of your time. Some of you taking vacation so you can invest in the next generation. It's really right in alignment synergy with the 119-year history of our church that every generation is reaching the next generation. So praise God for the over 95 adults that kind of gave up their time to serve the next generation. And praise God this morning for eight baptisms. Just uh, praising God for new life in Christ is something we've been begging the Lord for. Praising God for today. Just also excited to remind you that our creative teams and content teams has put together a sermon-aligned curriculum that is going to walk alongside the very sermon you're going to hear this morning morning on God our faithful Father. And so if you want more information about that, if you'd love devotionally to kind of take this throughout the week to go a little bit further, to run a little bit faster, text the word WAY to 45776. I also want to introduce myself. My name is Matt Brooks. I'm the senior pastor here at First Baptist Church of Broken Arrow. And so if you're new with us this morning, we'd love to personally meet and greet you right after these services. Going to be hanging out at our Next Step Center or text the word NEW to 45776. Without any further ado, just want to say Happy Father's Day, dads. Just hey, just thank Thank you for all you're doing in Christ. Thank you for who you are to some of the best dads in the world right here in and amongst our church. So proud of you. So grateful for you. So excited today to talk about God, our loving Father. Dads, have a day. So man, barbecue something, fry something, put chocolate on something, Dr. Pepper and bacon for everyone. All right. Happy Father's Day. And dad, that's what I want to talk to you about today. From Galatians chapter 4, I want to talk to you about the irreplaceable value of being an actively involved dad. Dads, you are a big, big deal. Not only does the Bible affirm this, but even sociologists. In fact, there was such an indelible impact upon dads being dads inside the home, sociologists are calling it the fatherhood effect. So though it is true that 100% of all of your kids, all of those inside your home, they're going to be exposed to some bad dad jokes every once in a while. But did you realize that with an actively involved father in the home, you are 39% more likely to get straight A's? You are twice as likely to graduate high school with honors, and you're also twice as likely to go to college with a dad who is active in the home. In fact, you are 80% less likely to ever go to jail if you had an active father in your life. There is something about a dad living out his faith. There is something about the day-by-day interaction with a father to those who was placed in their home. In fact, it was the Pulitzer Prize-winning author in the 50s and 60s, Clarence Buddington Kedlin, who said it well when he said, My father didn't tell me how to live. He lived and let me watch him do it. And that is exactly, as we conclude now, Galatians chapter 4, what Paul is reminding us, the realization and confirmation of our sonship in Christ by God the Father. And so Paul, since Galatians 4, has now been expounding on what faith does for us in 
Christ. And so what I want to do is I want to take these verses, Galatians 4, 4 through 7, and I want to remind us of our sonship of Christ. And I want to remind us of how God as Father collaborates with the Holy Spirit and our spirit to cry out, Abba, Father, as Paul says in Galatians 4, 6. And I want to give you three attributes of God's fatherhood throughout the Bible. And humbly, dads, I'm going to call you to this. Uh, I'm going to call us to exemplify these things in the home. We are then going to work our way to Galatians 4, verses 21 through 31, this series of texts, unlike any other in the New Testament, this series of texts of polars and opposites and all of these things. And I'm going to end with kind of four short dad-isms, these pithy statements that, you know, any good dad should be teaching those. And we're going to have an incredible time together as we celebrate God, our faithful Father. With that in mind, your Bible says this in verses 4 and 5 of Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born on law. Why, Paul? And he gives two purpose clauses here. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Paul reminds us of God as Father at the exact, precise, perfect time in all of history. Sent Christ the Son, who through by faith in his substitutionary death, buys us back from the curse of sin and the bondage of the law. Pays in full the totality of our sin, past, present, and future. Consequently, Christ's followers in are regenerated. We are born again, united in Christ, co-heirs with Christ as God's chosen and justified, sanctified, and now adopted children. Can I tell you this is something very, very unique, even within the New Testament. The great theologian J.I. Packer was right when he said adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers. Why? Because it is God who administrates our adoption. It is Christ the Son who accomplishes our adoption. It is the Holy Spirit inside of us that seals and secures our adoption and the riches of God's grace, His goodness, and for His glory. The word adoption, so, so magnanimous, so stupendous. It's only mentioned five times in the entire New Testament. In fact, of the 27 books in the New Testament, it's only found in Romans, Ephesians, and Galatians. And Paul reminds us right here in verse 5 that we have received the full adoptions as sons. You see, in the Roman Empire, adoption was incredibly significant. See, unlike in our current culture where it's you know, young kids and you know, kids who need immediate help, most of them between the ages of birth and 12 years old. In Paul's day, it was adults, usually males in their upper 20s or 30s. That after a time of copious evaluation, meticulous interviews in regard to their personal leadership and responsibility and stewardship and business acumen, then they were adopted. It was a formal process, often contentious. Oftentimes, the, the Roman Senate would even have to adhere and approve these adoptions. Paul uses the same imagery to describe what God has done now united by faith in Christ to us. Once separated stuck in lawlessness and in bondage to our sin, now free as sons and daughters of a king to inherit the full, rightful inheritance of God himself as a co-heir with Christ. And that is why Paul, at the end of verse 5, uses this compound word, huistine, to place 
someone as a son who has no right being there and making them your own forever. God is our faithful Father. And because you are sons, Paul says in verse 6, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul, to people who needed to be assured of this truth, confidently expounds on the totality of the triune God's involvement in every aspect of our union with Christ. That God himself, by the Spirit, faithfully guarantees our future status with him by sealing us once and for all with his own Spirit. You are not a slave. You are not a stranger. You, you are not some foreign, you know, third cousin to the Lord. No, in Christ, you're a son, you're a daughter. For at salvation, we are instantaneously united to Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That as a result of our faith in Christ, God, by the Holy Spirit, espouses believers, adopts us as sons and daughters by the imparting and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, even to our innermost being. The Bible says in verse 6 that he sends, see this word? Sends the spirit of his son into our hearts. You see, God as father loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us and his spirit to live in us. That it is God as father who through regeneration eternally seals us as his own possession. Who just as he sent the son to die for us, to save us, now sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts when we trust in Jesus as Lord, securing us for all time, through all things. Oh, God, as Father, he loves us so much. He sent his son to die for us and his spirit to live in us. And it is God by the Holy Spirit now who indwells in us, who the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, he instructs us and convicts us and teaches us through his word. So for, at one time, the, this Bible was just a, a culmination of, of this magnanimous work and content, these words and phrases. Now all of a sudden, everything comes alive. You have conjunctions that at one time meant nothing, now mean everything. Why? Because God himself illuminates his truth. And he amplifies his truth within our own hearts. and points us to Christ. He instructs us, he convicts us, and he teaches us as we grow and follow Christ. Secondly, God himself by the Holy Spirit leads and guides us into righteousness. God not only changes our life, he changes our way of life and thus our living. The man we begin to appreciate and follow what was once duty is now joy. What was once this obligation, these rules and regulations is now a guide that leads to a path of righteousness. We wake up yearning to bring more and more glory to the God that we trusted in by faith, but will one day see by sight, Jesus says in John 16, verse 13. It is this God that comforts us even in our weaknesses, Paul says in Romans 8, 26. You see, you come to Christ knowing that whatever you do is never enough, but that what he has done is always enough. 
And it's always the same collaboration that we have enjoined by the Spirit to our own spirit. That as we walk and live life, even in our failures, God gets the glory. Even in our shortcomings, he is glorified. Even when we are weak, he is strong. And it's this reality that plays out in our lives so much so that in high times and low times, in times of blessing and joy, and in times when we need the Lord, we cry out, Abba, Father. Paul says in verse 6, do you see this here? That the Holy Spirit confirms our sonship, assures us of an intimate, intentional, personal relationship with God, our loving Father. So much so that we collectively, by God's Spirit, through our spirit, cry out, Abba, Father. Oh, when times are good and blessed, we're reminded of God's providence and goodness to us, though we don't deserve it. Oh, when times of suffering and strife and phone calls and calamities and all of these other things, kids and mortgages and crazy governments and stupid decisions and all of these things, we cry out to God, our Abba Father. That there's an intentionality that leads from the intimacy of God's faithfulness to us that empowers our faith to Him. I was reminded this week in studying of a theologian who him and his wife were led to adopt children in Russia. And so they, they flew over to Russia and, and they were led to this orphanage where there were hundreds of kids. Can you imagine? Hundreds of kids in this room, laying in cots and laying on the floor and malnourished, needing attention and care and love. And the only thing more astonishing than the current reality of what was in the room was that there wasn't a single sound from these hundreds of kids. Now I gotta tell you, I, I, I had five. There, there's never a time when there's not a sound in my household. Can you imagine a room full of hundreds of children, not one sound, nothing. And so the theologian goes to the coordinator of the orphanage and says, why aren't these kids communicating? Why? Aren't these kids making a sound? She looked at him very matter-of-factly and said, why would they? There's no one here to meet their needs. There's no one here to care for them or love for them. Why would they cry? For they have no sense of relief. There is no one to dry their tears. There is no one to feed their stomachs. There is no one to even acknowledge that they're making a sound. Why would they? Please notice how Paul describes the intentionality and the intimacy of God's providential care of you. That you at any time in anything can cry out to him, Abba, Father. That God so loved us that when we were orphans, he gave us his son so he could be our dad that God himself collectively empowers our faith to respond to him as he desires to be responded to. Not as some far off aloof CEO, not as some ruthless, merciless emperor, but rather as Abba. Abba is an Aramaic word in the Bible. It can be more appropriately translated daddy or dad. 
or Papa. In fact, of all of the titles of God in the Bible, it seems that Father was his favorite. In fact, did you realize that God is called Father over 200 times in the first four books of the New Testament? That the word Abba carries within itself an adoring child to a loving father. Both biblically and extra biblically, it's always used within the context, are you ready for this? Of a loving nearness. That there is an intentionality. That there's not just a spatial awe that we're to have of God. But there's this loving intimacy with cares, how God wants you to approach him, talk to him, live for him. Abba, Father. In fact, did you realize that in the Bible, the first spoken words of Jesus was Abba, Father? Remember in Luke chapter 2, verse 49, when Jesus is in the temple and his parents, or earthly parents, Mary and Joseph, are feverishly looking for him, just as we would, right? They've been looking for him all day, and they go throughout the crowds, and finally they find him. And Jesus tells them, don't you know that I should be in my Father's, my Abba's house? In Luke 2, 49, it would be Jesus who would often address God in the Gospels in such a manner. Abba, Daddy, Papa. And it's the same Spirit who indwelt Christ that indwells us. It's the same status. It is the same approach that God desires you to talk to Him in the same way Jesus talked to Him. God in a particular, close, intimate, intentional fashion, desires to love and lead and shepherd us as his children. And so what I want to do is that I want to take three, three principles on the fatherhood of God throughout the Bible. And dads, I want to use it to encourage us. I want to use it to inspire us to be more like God, our faithful father. The Bible reminds us time and time again that God is approachable. That we can approach God at any time with anything. Paul reminds us in the book of Ephesians that it wasn't always this way. That we were once far off. But he says in Ephesians 2.13, now by grace we are drawn to the throne. That we can approach him at any time. Dads, this isn't always the easiest thing. In fact, I read this week that 63% of all dads in America say they don't spend enough time with their kids. 63% of us in this room. And we struggle with this tension of providing for our families and leading our families, but yet also being with our families. Can I tell you that God wants you to set the intentionality? That God is asking you, as a father of your home, to to set those boundaries and to know when it is appropriate to close the door and get to work. But also know when it's time to be dead, time to be a father. Are you approachable? Are you leading in such a way with your children and those inside your home that they know they can approach you, that they can talk to you and engage with you? Oh, God the Father, he was approachable. God the Father was also all there. In fact, James says it like this in James 4a, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That it is God who sets the pace. That it is God who sets the intentionality. That it is God as Father who leads in the way, so much so that God the Holy Spirit collaborates collectively with our spirit to enjoin us, to be united to Christ, to come to Christ. 
to live in love and to cherish Christ as he lives in us and loves us. But yeah, this isn't always the easiest thing. In fact, 39%, only 39% of all dads in America say that they listen to their children. Very good. That they're really good at listening. So many of us, we're in the room, but we're not in the room. So many of us, we're having a conversation, but we're not engaged in the conversation. Are you all there to whom God has entrusted in your home? Are you leading the way by looking them in the eye, by reminding them that there is a reason why God has placed them and trusted them in your home? so that you can show and share the love of the Father to them, so that you can exemplify a father who desires in the most intimate, intentional way to be approachable, to be all there, and to be all in. God loves us in such a way, so much so that Paul says in Romans 5, 5, that God lavishes his love upon us through the Holy Spirit, that God holds nothing back, that he expounds from the riches of his glory, from the expanse of his eternal inheritance. He disposes upon us. And thus he is approachable, he is all there, he is all in in the way in which he lovingly cares for us. You say, well, what does that look like? I think it means not just assuming that people know inside your home that you love them, but it's telling them. Man, those three words sometimes can make all the difference. I love you. It's not always the easiest thing for whatever reason. It's not something that we've really exemplified, passed on from generation to generation. My grandpa went to be with the Lord earlier this year and was just really a true renaissance man. In so many ways, his life was so simple, but in so many ways, he specifically was very complex. He was just a man that saw God bless his work. And so he worked heartily unto the Lord. He built his house, he built his ranch, he built his quarter horse empire from there. He faithfully loved my grandmother. He provided for my grandmother. He cared for his four children. He loved his grandchildren, but he never told them. There was just this assumption by what he provided And I got to tell you, there was this gulf, this chasm that began to develop because assumptions aren't always reality. And so I waited 37 years of my life before I ever heard my grandpa say, stump, that's what he called me, I love you. I was so caught off guard. The first time he said it, I just, excuse me, what? He said, stump, I love you. I'm proud of you. And can I tell you, It was worth the wait. It was worth those 37 years to hear those three words. And can I tell you, it got easier after that. I say, Grandpa, I love you too. I'm grateful for you too. And oh, in the three years that God gave us after that, the richness and the depth. You see, I can't help but who God has placed around you and in your home and in your sphere. In circles, that needs to be told today, I love you and God loves you. I don't care if it's awkward. I don't care if it's hard. It's worth it. You take the initiative. You make the phone call. You send the text. Say, I love you. But only say it. Show it. Show them. Allow God to in and through you make 
you aware of the stewardship you have? One conversation at a time. And though we're not going to be perfect, though we're going to take too many conversations of magnitude, too casual. Oh, if we're faithful, what God can do in and through our lives. Are we making sure that when God places people in front of us, that we are lovingly caring for them, that we're approachable, that we're all there, that we're all in? Look them in the eye. Do the most holy thing you can do. Set your cell phone aside. Turn it off. Put your notifications on silence. And talk. Look, my house is a lot like yours. I've got several kids that I appear to pose very engaging, open-ended questions. And yet they come back with, fine, good, yes. <laughs> it's not always the easiest thing, is it? But I find in God's sense of humor that the very frustration that I have with how my kids talk to me, that God the Father can relate to how I talk to him. So when I'm reading the Bible and when God the Spirit is talking to me and I'm fine, good, yes, God is a loving, faithful Father can relate. Dad, set the pace. Dad, you lead the way. Keep engaging. Keep talking. Keep pointing them to Christ. And do it in such a way that you're playing together. Man, once a week, I mean, go, go outside, go enjoy all of these things that God has entrusted to us and blessed to us. Man, go eat good food together. You know, my house, the most important piece of furniture in my entire house is the dinner table. It's non-negotiable. You're going to be there. We're going to eat good food. We're going to turn off all the machines and we're going to talk. Even just for a minute, we're going to talk. Some of the best moments of my week, every week. Play together. Eat together. Pray together. A family that prays together stays together. Dads, I want to challenge you. Do not get out of your bed every morning without praying for everyone that God has placed in your home by name. Do not go to sleep any night without praying for everyone that God has placed in your home. And you'll be amazed what God can do with such a faithful dad who exemplifies the characteristics of God, our faithful father. So much so, Paul says in verse seven, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That God is the author of our adoption is, as Father, the source of our inheritance. A inheritance that is eternal in accordance to the status given to us by God our Father. As spiritual sons and daughters, co-heir with Christ. That God gives his sons and daughters everything the Son possesses. He does not hold back in his lavish, lavish expoundance of the very blessings and promises that he gives to us as his children. What a savior. What a father. What a blessed assurance we have. And it is this tone now that Paul, throughout the rest of the book of Galatians, 
begins to change in how he communicates to Christ followers in southern Galatia. Galatians 4, verses 21 and 31, it comes after very substantive, oof, theological arguments that Paul has remind us of a resounding faith in Christ, not of works or legalism or any other thing, that Paul has now given the first command in all of Galatians, Galatians 4, where he entrusted them, become like me, imitate me. I was once in bondage to the Mosaic requirements. I was once enslaved to the ceremonial rules. I was once hopelessly giving my life to the pharisaical routines. Now I'm free in Christ. And so he concludes this chapter now with a different tone and this amazing story that presupposes you knowing Genesis 12 through 21, which I'm about to give you a summary. And it's a story of two moms, one who is free, Sarah, the other one who is a slave, Hagar, of two sons of Abraham. One is of promise, Isaac. The other one is of the flesh, Ishmael. Two covenants, one of grace and one of law, and thus two destinies. One of the blessings that come with the promise of faith in Christ. The other one, the reality of faith in oneself. And thus the judgment and condemnation of the law as a result of the barrenness of legalism. And so Paul in these unique verses begins with a rhetorical question in verse 21. He tells a story in verses 22 and 23. He introduces an allegorical illustration for the first time and only time in the New Testament in verse 24. He quotes Isaiah 54 verse 1 in verse 27. He quotes Genesis 21 verse 10 in verse 30. And he gives us here an imagery that I'm going to give you a summary and then I'm going to give you four dadisms. Four little pithy, short statements that every dad in Christ should remind their houses. And he says in verse 21, tell them, you who desire to be made under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically, that these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear or break forth or cry aloud. You are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? For cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers... We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. I'll remind you that now for two chapters, Paul has been building this point. He's been building through three series of arguments that we, as children of promise, have always been from inception justified, declared righteous by God, by faith. 
that if we desire to be children of the law, then we must keep every requirement of that law. Thus, all of us who have fallen short as a result of our sin are not children of promise, but children of judgment and wrath. It is this imagery that Paul begins a transition to Galatians 5 and 6 by giving us one other story, an allegory of one of polar opposites, of one that details, one, the path of faith versus the path of wrath. And he uses this story of Abraham, of Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and her maidservant, Hagar, of Abraham's son of promise, Isaac, and his son of the flesh, Ishmael. You see, in Genesis 12, God came to Abram when he was 75 years old. And though Abram was a pagan in the land of Ur, and more than likely a polytheistic, worshipped many gods, God, the one true God, came to him, said, leave your family, your kindred, and go to a land which I will show you. A land full of milk and honey, a blessing. And I will give you land and blessings and descendants. According to Genesis 15, as numerous as the stars in the sky. And so Abram, even though he was childless, and his wife of Sarah was barren, he went and he trusted God. And 10 years later, at approximately 86 years old, Abram finds himself in Genesis 15 and 16 still without a child of promise. So Sarah, his wife, wife often do, provides some counsel and some instruction to Abram. Now, overwhelmingly, men, listen to your wives who love the Lord. But Sarah came to Abram and said, hey, we don't have a kid yet. We're waiting. But I've got an idea. I've got a maidservant named Hagar. Now, this was legal back in the day, even though it was outside of God's promise. And Abram, why don't you marry Hagar? And then she can give us an heir, a son. And so Abram, instead of trusting the promises of God, listened to his wife. And Hagar bore Abram a son by the name of Ishmael. You can read about this in Genesis 16, verses 1 through 6. But God, as father, faithful to his promises, comes to Abram in Genesis 17 and 18. and says, Abram, remember when I told you that you were going to a land which I will show you? that there will be blessing upon this promise, that you will have a descendants as numerous as stars in the sky, that you, Abram, are to look up in Genesis 15 and 16 to see if you can count these stars, so will be your progeny. Well, Abram, I'm now going to change your name. You will no longer be Abram, exalted father. You will be Abraham, Abrahim, exalted father of many nations. And at the age of 99 God affirms that through Sarah, she will bear his son a promise. No wonder they named the son Isaac, one who makes us laugh. That this was a son of promise. That it was only God himself who could have done this. And then after the son was born, in the Hebrew home, there was always a time of weaning. Where at the age of three the child will begin to prepare to become a man, to receive 
as a rightful heir, all rights and blessings and privileges from the inheritance of the Father. And in Genesis 21, verses 1 through 17, you find this process beginning with Isaac. And now Ishmael, 13 years old, sees this kid, this three-year-old. Can't read, can't write. This is the son of promise. And so in light of this moment, Abraham, knowing he needed to be a man of promise, to raise a son of promise, now cast out Ishmael and Hagar from his family. And it's this scene that Paul, in an allegorical way, presents to us. Why? Let me give you four dadisms, four short, pithy statements that we need to be reminded of this story as we conclude this study. Number one, live a life that matters by living for what matters. You see, according to verse 25, you had Hagar and Ishmael and even Sarah to some regard that got caught up in the present Jerusalem. They got caught up in the moment. They were distracted from the very promise that God gave them. Don't allow these things of life to distract you from what God has for you in your life. Don't allow these obstacles and these trials and these matters to get you unfocused to what truly matters in your life. Stay focused on living a life that matters by living for what matters. Keep your eyes on who matters, your faithful Father. Secondly, then, live like you know God keeps his promises. Notice Paul in verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, your children of promise. That's who we are. We are children of a dad who keeps his promises, who is faithful to bestow upon us the very thing that he promises to us in Christ. Therefore, our lives should reflect such confidence. Therefore, our faith should abound step by step, decision by decision, choice by choice in the promises that God has given us, knowing that persecution and trials are going to come, that none of us are immune from these things. But yet persecution and trials are worth the rewards of faith in Christ and are better than any reward apart from Christ in verse 29. That though Ishmael was born according to the flesh, we are children of faith and promise. That we live in this world. We're not to be of this world. That we're to live on mission. And though trials, persecution, suffering may come for differing degrees to us all, we must realize that God has already given us the greatest reward, that we have Christ, that we are co-heirs with Christ, that our faith is in the process of becoming sight each and every day, one present trial or persecution or suffering at a time. It is this astounding reality then that we do not choose anything else over Christ, that we desire to cast out anything in our lives, that we prioritize Christ for he is the hope, the confident expectation that is to come. He is our hope and glory. 
So dads, live by his grace, through his word, led by his spirit. Live for not the present Jerusalem, but live for the Jerusalem above. Live as a child of promise, as a co-heir adopted by God in Christ for the glory of God the Father who saw it fit to entrust you providentially with everyone inside your home that you can lovingly point to him in a way that is approachable, that is always there, and that's all in because there's no other way of life. There's no other way than to trust God, his promises, to live for his son, to receive his blessing and inheritance and to give your life just as God, as loving father, sent his son and sends his spirit so you can live your life for him. Happy Father's Day, Dad. But may you live to exemplify the very faith and love and grace that God has so graciously given you. For God is our faithful Father. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe to hear other messages. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us online at fbcba.org. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and always remember, you are loved.